0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
3: I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
3: And Ed, CES, it kicks off in Las Vegas. NVIDIA is already unveiling new chips at the annual tech event. Details ahead on the company's AI ambitions.
0: And Elon Musk's reported drug use is a new headache for the boards of Tesla and SpaceX. We discuss the legal risks and Musk's response.
3: Plus, Instacart. It will begin showing advertisements on its high-tech shopping cart in the latest addition to the company's growing ad business. Our exclusive interview with the CEO, Fujisimo. The
0: Wall Street Journal reporting some historic. Drug use by Elon Musk, according to anonymous sources, that is worrying board members and staff at Tesla and SpaceX. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, who's a member of the Elon Musk Inc., Pod is going to come on and break down what is a very complicated story. If Tesla is the proxy for Elon Musk's sentiment, it is higher by six-tenths of 1%. Really big movement in semiconductors. Look particularly at NVIDIA, up almost 5%. But semiconductors broadly having a pretty good morning. You know, the socks was pretty downtrodden in the final trading days of 2023. It's somewhat of a rebound. But in the last hour... Some news. NVIDIA announced new products to help the personal computer industry lure consumers with AI PCs, which will let gamers, designers and other computer users make better use of AI on personal machines. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Ian King, who's been tracking the keynote at CES and the details. What are these chips that we're talking about, Ian?
1: Yeah, I mean, these are really just updates to its existing range of chips. What it's done is put in a few more new um, components that are going to help with the uh, AI processing, some new cores, some better man- memory bandwidth. And it's also uh, adjust the prices, made the prices a little bit more attractive as well.
3: Just an update, Ian, yet... Yeah. The stock rally is hard. We're back at a all-time high for Nvidia shares. Best day since August the 21st, 2023. Is it just that we needed a moon music shift? Is it just because AI actually is everything to this particular company?
1: Well, I mean, clearly, I think the last thing you said is the answer there. Clearly, AI has been an enormous benefit for this company already. It's proved materially that this is real, that this is about actual sales and actual deployment. Again, NVIDIA comes out here and says, hey, don't forget about us, this AI PC that... Intel that AMD has been talking about, we can do this too. And actually we think we're better than they are. So again, that's likely to press the right kind of button with investors and and we're seeing that reaction.
0: It's interesting the timing though. It's a CES keynote adjacent CES because it's virtual. I'm about to get on a plane and go to Vegas, hopefully. The story with, with NVIDIA was the H100, you know, a GPU that goes into a server design that goes into a data center, you build your large language models. This seems like NVIDIA reminding
1: everyone, hey, we're actually pretty good at PC. Is it going to be important business for them? I mean, up until about a year ago, it was their biggest. It was the one thing we talked about. GeForce was their main product. The PC was, was what they were. That's where the volume is, right? So it isn't going to stay an important business for them. Right now, all the profits, all of the major gains are from the data center. But yeah, of course, they used to open CES every year with, hey, this bright new shiny thing, and this is them reminding people, hey, we're still here as well. You really need to pay attention to us in this market. Maybe I'm reading too much into
0: it. I mean, last year,
1: part of the story
0: among many was kind of Jensen Huang, the, Mm. the leather jacket wearing next Elon Musk type, mm. uh, maybe today of all days we won't, we won't make that comparison, um, but their momentum hasn't really stopped, you know, they, the stock is buoyant, I think Caro mentioned a fresh record high, um, what is the story for NVIDIA going into 2024?
1: I mean, they have a whole host of new products, um, which we saw some of announced today. And Jensen said, look, we are actually going to speed up the cadence of new products that we announce. The story is, will that cadence keep them ahead of what Intel, what AMD and everybody else says they're going to do in that space? Can they keep themselves the must-have technology provider for that particular area?
3: we see it one more than a trillion dollar valuations that stands 1.27 trillion dollar market cap so for now investors still remain ever and pleased with NVIDIA. Ian King, we thank you so much for breaking down what they're saying ahead of CES. And let's just stick with the overall value of generative AI, not just the individual companies, but the economy more broadly and how it's going to be interweaved into basically every single industry group. Paul Doherty does that with us, Accenture Chief Technology and Innovation Officer. And Paul, you've done the numbers, you've crunched them. I want to go into how you get the numbers, but talk to us to what the overall economic impact AI, generative AI you think is going to have.
4: Yeah, well, uh, I come to you here from uh, Las Vegas and CES, which you were just talking about, where AI is the, uh, the theme here. And as you said, our role uh, in this is we help companies uh, deploy uh, technology solutions and generative AI clearly is the, the hot ticket right now. Uh, 95% of executives tell us they're going to increase the spending on technology as they go into 2024, and 97% of executives believe generative AI is transformative for the business that they're doing. And based on the research that we've done, uh, we see that impacting 44% of all of the working hours across industries globally, and that adds up to about $8 to $10 trillion of economic value uh, over the next several years as companies adopt generative AI. So it's a big impact, I believe, of all the waves I've tracked over my career, all the technology waves. And this is a very much of a wave-driven industry, as you know. Uh, This is the biggest one, I believe, in terms of the transformation that it will drive for us as individuals in terms of how we work and live and in terms of businesses and how they they drive uh, their technology.
3: Eight to ten trillion. How does that assert itself? What sort of value are you seeing? Is that by freeing up individuals? Is it about ability to preserve the bottom line for companies doing more with less? What is it that drives that money?
4: Well, that's the exciting thing about the the generative AI and the technology we're seeing now, the related technologies. We talk about this as an inflection point in the nature of technology. Technology's been, it's been kind of the nuts and bolts and the plumbing, you know, the cloud and uh, PCs and such has been about the infrastructure. Generative AI is about human capability. It's about looking in the mirror and seeing technology that does things kind of like what we do, and that's why it's so transformative. So, yes, it's about productivity, as you said. We believe it does drive tremendous productivity. For example... In a uh, large uh, telecommunications organization, we applied generative AI in customer service, drove 30% productivity, and 60% increase in customer satisfaction as a result. So it's about productivity and the outcomes as well. But the interesting thing about generative AI is also it can drive creativity and new ways of doing things. We're using it in uh, in our digital agency business that we call Accenture Song to create new advertising campaigns, more creative, more personalized than what you could have done before. And one final, really unexpected, maybe benefit of generative AI is the benefit for the individual. Hmm. We did a, 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 a implementation for our sales organization at Accenture, uh, a pilot of, of generative AI, and how we sell. And one of the interesting findings was yes, it, it produced better results. Yes, it produced better productivity but it also imp- increased people's satisfaction and their, their feeling of balance in the work they were doing because it took away some of the tasks they didn't want to do. So there's a lot, of, a lot in this, and it's the early stages, but a lot for us to understand as we look toward how we're going to drive that big value.
3: And so that sort of goes counterweight to some of the anxiety, I think, that have been across many an industry group, but I also think consultants and lawyers, about what it really means about white-collar jobs in the future. Paul, do you think that will erode jobs?
4: Well, you know, I think there's—it's going to change jobs. That's the way to think about it. It's not about AI taking over our jobs, and I think we've gotten that narrative wrong. You know, there's been a lot of fear about AI coming for all the jobs, and I think that's kind of backwards. I think this is about how we can enhance what we as people do in uh, in how we in how we do things. And we talk about things like human in the loop on jobs. But again, that's backwards. It's really about more, more about how can a person have a wingman help them be more productive. So I think the the key thing is, how do you bring along your workforce that they're able to use these new tools? How does that customer service agent I talked about do their new job? Uh, In another example, in the energy industry, we've deployed generative AI as a worker safety assistant to help people do their work more safely, more cognizant of regulations and policy, as well as their own personal safety. And uh, these types of things are going to help people and make jobs More interesting, and in fact, one uh, piece of one piece of data from a uh, uh, research that we're releasing right now talks about the fact that ninety-five percent of workers are actually excited about how generative AI can change the nature of the work that they're doing.
0: Uh, Paul, you're a tech guy. I'm jumping on a, a plane very soon to head out to Vegas to join you. AI is clearly the overarching theme across the keynotes, the exhibitors, whatever. But. That's across healthcare, automotive, software, consumer electronics, big box retail, markets, in terms of the speakers. Give me just one example, the thing that you think has the most substance coming out of CES this year.
4: Well, I think the, the thing that's, that's really exciting is... Um is I think this shift from a year of experimentation and education around AI to uh, moving into 2024 as the year when companies look to drive value at scale with it. That's why you see the senior executives from Walmart, from Best Buy, from Siemens and other companies, from Accenture and other companies talking here and uh, it's about that shift to value and driving the value. Uh, and that's what I think you're going to start to see is um, you know, CES really at the convergence showing thousands of companies and new innovations around these technologies and organizations understanding how do they use that to transform. And I think that's the real interesting point we're at with CES this year.
0: All right, I see you out there. Paul Doherty of Accenture, thank you for your time. Cara, what you got?
3: Well, coming up, Instacart expanding its ad business with high-tech shopping carts. That's, of course, going to be available to be interacting with its CES, I'm sure. Meanwhile, let's just look at the shares of what's happening with Apple as well. We know it's key when it comes to driving the points move on some of these key benchmarks. Interestingly, a bit of a bounce back on Apple today. We're at 1.8%. Of course, NASDAQ more broadly on the higher side. Vision Pro, it goes on sale February 2nd. Now, but remember, Bloomberg Intelligence out with a great piece just saying, look, the, the addition that you're going to get in sales, the increase, $1.75 billion to be added to an annual revenue, well, that's not nearly enough to make up for some of the consumer weakness going on in China. And that's what Jeffries highlights today. Jeffries out with a note saying they see that in December, sales in China fell some 30% according to their numbers. Fascinating. We continue to digest. This is Bloomberg Technology.
5: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
2: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
3: instacart will show advertisements on the high-tech shopping carts that it currently sells to grocery stores it's the latest addition to the company's growing ads business and a sign of investment in products outside of grocery delivery i sat down for an exclusive conversation about it with Simo. take a listen
6: we have a lot of interest from retailers. Now you can see Caper carts deployed at Kroger, Wakefern, Good Food Holdings, Sobeys, Schnucks and many more from Santa Monica all the way to Manhattan and we think in, uh, you know, in 2024 we're going to have thousands of carts deployed and the reason they're uh, really excited to deploy these carts in store is because customers love them. We have a net promoter score of above 70 which is very high and we hear over and over from customers how fun the shopping journey becomes when you're using this course and how convenient it is. So we really believe it's going to be the future of grocery shopping.
3: Future for U.S. shopping. How international could this get? You, of course, someone who is French and I know that Caper was already having exposure to Spain and to France, for example.
6: We certainly want to make that something that goes international as well. We're very focused on the U.S. because that's obviously our core market, but we do have interest from international retailers as well, so we're we're bullish on the international strategy there as well.
3: And all of this, paint the picture for the direction of travel for Instacart because Is this trying to ensure that you're not just purely an online play for retailers, consumers, but also you've really managed to draw in higher margins through advertising? How much are you trying to broaden out what Instacart really is to an investor and indeed, of course, the retailer and a consumer?
6: Well, when I joined Instacart, to me, it was obvious that we weren't just a grocery delivery app. We were already a company that was building technology to help retailers with this big digital transformation happening. And we were doing that primarily through uh, e-commerce, obviously. And so with Cards, we're really expanding into building technologies for the store because what we believe is that customers are not going to shop just online or just in store. They're going to shop omni-channels and uh, the retailers who really create the best, most seamless omnichannel experience are the retailers that are going to gain an edge. And Instacart is giving them this edge. And does
3: it give you an edge versus who analysts might say are your competitors? There is worry from some analysts that Uber, DoorDash are going to eat on some of your market share, that Amazon and Walmart are so good at omnichannel as well. How does this carve you a niche?
6: Well we already are the very clear category leader in grocery and uh in grocery delivery and here like this uh this launch really prove that we have a completely different strategy from these players our strategy is to enable retailers with all of the technologies they need to run their business and that applies online and that's why we have you know the vast majority of retailers already on our platform well above any competitor but also now helping them with their store and helping them with creating a new revenue line for them because as we launch advertising on Keeper cars we are sharing revenue with retailers and for, uh, you know, helping them grow their business both online and in-store. That's a completely different strategy from some of the marketplace you mentioned uh, where these marketplaces are really just about growing their marketplace. And in fact, in in some cases, even competing with retailers. Mm. We don't do that. We enable retailers.
3: Fujisimo of Instacart and Instacart or Maple Bearers, however you want to discuss it, currently up 2.3% on the trading day at the moment, Ed. Our exclusive conversation with the CEO there.
0: OK, it's time for Talking Tech. And first up in the news, Sony planning to cool off its $10 billion merger pact of its India unit with Z Entertainment, that according to sources. The move caps two years of drama and delay in creating a $10 billion media giant. And the standoff has been over whether Z's CEO would eventually lead the merged entity. And Microsoft has picked longtime executive Dee Templeton to join OpenAI's board as a non-voting observer, that according to Bloomberg sources. Templeton has worked at My- Microsoft for more than 25 years and is the company's vice president for technology and research partnerships and operations. Plus, Elon Musk's reported drug use by the Wall Street Journal is worrying Tesla and SpaceX's board members. The Wall Street Journal cited anonymous sources and witnesses. Now they've got a big decision whether to do anything about it with Elon Musk and the financial or legal risk the reporting could pose those companies. carry.
3: Let's dive deeper into that story. Pretty serious allegations. And again, this quandary left for the board members, as you say, Ed, and it's a familiar one. What to do, if anything, about Musk, about legal or financial repercussions, of course, and what it means for his companies that he manages. Well, we're pleased to have an expert with us, Max Chafkin, business economist and one of the members of Elon Inc. podcast, which has taken Bloomberg by storm. Look, reports by the journal that Musk has been using LSD, cocaine, ecstasy, psychedelic mushrooms, often at private parties, Elon Musk himself has come out on his own social media platform. What did you say? What did you make?
7: Well, he's he's sort of swung in various directions. At sometimes he said, "Well, whatever I'm taking, I should continue taking it," uh, <laughs> basically pointing to the performance and also the fact that a lot of this stuff, or at least some of it, has happened more or less in the open. He, you know, he uh, smoked marijuana on Joe Rogan's podcast. He has said he has a prescription for ketamine, uh, which is you know a party drug. He said he's using it you know to treat depression. Um, uh, but he's also said that SpaceX has been required to drug test him mm. um, as part of the Joe Rogan fallout thing and and he said he's never failed a drug test. So he's sort of essentially saying, number one, this is overblown. Number two, the companies are doing great. So,
0: you know, what's the big deal? The thing is that either the Wall Street Journal report is accurate, right, Max, it cites anonymous sources, or it's not. And this was the post that caught my eye, Elon Musk saying that following that Joe Rogan appearance 2018, at NASA's request, he agreed to random drug testing of a period of three years. We've asked for comment from NASA and from SpaceX, but if the drug testing took place, we'd have more to go on with this story.
7: Yeah, I mean, the Journal's uh, article mentions the fact that he was drug tested. It also uh, notes that, you know, some of the drugs they're talking about are not traditionally, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, in that kind of drug test. So we're, we're talking about psychedelics. Um, that is the allegation, um, in addition to some of the things that Caroline uh, just mentioned. So, again, it's not totally clear what he would be testing positive for. Um, and and, and I, I don't think it's hugely surprising that he's been drug tested because, of course, a lot of government contractors drug tested. Employees.
3: Less than a minute, Max. But this comes down to ultimately a board who some warrior just too close to him.
7: Well I think with with Elon Musk, you know, there's the conversation around drug tests, and then there's the the bigger conversation around sort of the erratic behavior. And, And sometimes we're talking about drugs. I think what we're really speaking about is the fact that he tweets weird stuff sometimes in the middle of the night. And I think in general, as long as the companies have done well, boards have been okay with it. Investors have been okay with it. And the real question is, when Tesla or SpaceX or one of these other companies hits a rough patch, what happens then? I think that will
0: be, if and when that happens, that will be when the rubber meets the road. And it's not concerning Tesla investors right now with the stock in positive territory. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco.
3: Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get you a check on these markets because we're back in rally mode for the day at least and certainly across tech, but across the broader indices today. A bit of an everything rally across the United States. And I'm going to individual names first and foremost. So let's dig into what's happening in NVIDIA, of course. This is at a record high, leading the charge in terms of points being added to the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100. NVIDIA launches, well should we just say updates, it's AI, PC, chips, and the market likes it. ahead of CES, we're up more than 4%, so a new record high for Nvidia. Look at what's happening in the world of Twilio though, also riding high, and this is as its co-founder, Jeff Lawson, is having to move st- stage left, basically. He's having to step down from the company, and back off, because many had felt that he's really too synonymous with just spending too much and not really focusing in on profitability, but his right-hand man for the past few years is basically taking over, so many questioning whether that really is gonna exert any sort of change in leadership. This is, of course, activist investors at play when it comes to Twilio. Apple on the upside as well. After what have been five straight days of losses, Apple managed to regain some ground. Vision Pro goes on sale February the 2nd. Also, extraordinary story regarding the iPhone and how that's been entangled with the disaster on that Boeing 737 MAX 9. We'll dig into that a little bit later. But notable on a day that Jeffrey's analysts are saying, look, they could be seeing a sell-off in terms of revenue, in terms of consumer demand lacking by 30% year on year in China. So we dig into all of that in a moment. But let's look at some of the big benchmarks and what's happening in terms of overall moon music. Because, Ed, we are riding high. NASDAQ 100 at 1.3%. Not happening in China, though. The Golden Dragon Index, of course, this being the NASDAQ Golden Dragon, on the downside, despite more ammunition being fed into the Chinese economy in terms of, well, the overall amount of money that banks have to hold, their ability to lend eased up, but not helping so far. And Bitcoin, we end there, up 2.4%. We're back above $45,000 as we anticipate the spot Bitcoin ETF being signed off. Do we think, Ed?
0: Uh, Bitcoin, Spot, ETF, Watch, Day... I don't know what day, it's been months, BlackRock, ARK, several other prospective issuers of ETFs filed amended forms this morning in what's seen by analysts as a final push to offer the investment products. Joining us now is Sunny Singh, co-founder and CEO of Beluga. Beluga offers software tools that allow users to manage their crypto portfolio, but also use new crypto products. You are watching this closely. It will impact your business and your world. that news, the updated forms, we have more information on fee structure which we can dig into, it seems like the the wait might soon be over.
8: Yeah, I mean, we've been waiting for five years. So I think we're getting close, whether or not they approve it this Wednesday or in the next 30 or 60 days, it's gonna happen. The question is then, when does it go live? Does SEC delay the S1 filings and all that stuff? I don't think so, I think they're kinda back against the wall, so I think they're gonna give in and you'll see an ETF go live. Q1, Q2 maybe, but the big question Genzo I think is going to do is say, okay, we'll give you your Bitcoin ETF. But we're not going to give you, you Solana, Ethereum, and all those right. ones. He's already said that we think you know Bitcoin is definitely not a security, but all the other ones we think are securities, so he's not going to give it on those ones, we you, think. You've been waiting five years. I've been <laughs> waiting slightly
0: less. Kara would point out there are others in the market that have been waiting much longer than five years. The, the other kind of data that we're getting now is the proposed fee structure. So if you think about Beluga and your customers accessing what is a new product in the market, why is the fee structure... Or fee proposed by the issuers important?
8: Yeah, I think I don't think the fees are going to be as super as important as people think, right? So I think like big. F- pension funds like CalPERS and all them are going to probably go with the BlackRock and the traditional big ones as well. It's the smaller retail people who already had access to GBTC, which has had much higher fees though than like a Bitwise will propose and all that kind of stuff. So I think the more retail investors will go off to the smaller fee ones where the BlackRock's and the bigger ones will get the higher big institutional investors actually.
3: And what's interesting is many would say they don't want to make kingmakers as to perhaps what happened with the future's ETF prior times, they're trying to ensure that, well, this is gonna be a bit of a race to marketing, I would have thought, to ensure that you get your name out there associated with a spot Bitcoin ETF. But all of this attracts how much money, Sunny? Have you put much research to it? How much of a change does this make to the ability to interact with Bitcoin?
8: It's going to be pretty exciting, and, and everyone relates back to what happened with the gold ETF when it was launched and all that, right? And if you do the same comparison, you're going to see huge buying pressure that could happen in the crypto space. And again, you're going to see institutional, family office, things like that. They're not going to put 10% of their money into these Bitcoin ETFs, but maybe 0.5%, 1%, 2%, which is a lot when you think about it in perspective. And again, there's only 19 million Bitcoin in existence. It's a finite supply, right? And with the halving coming in April, you're gonna start having, it's increasing supplying pressure with an increased buying pressure. Unlike what we've never seen before in crypto, along with lower interest rates, maybe by the end of the year, you really have a perfect storm is what we think could be a price catalyst to get Bitcoin over 100,000 by the end of the year.
3: What's so interesting, is when you read between the lines, it feels like Gary Gensler really does not want to do this. He just put out a tweet, well, a post a thread of posts. And this time really talking about how investments in crypto assets can also can be exceptionally risky and are often volatile. A number of major platforms and crypto assets have become insolvent and or lost value. Investments in crypto assets continue to be subject to significant risk. I mean, he's doing this through clenched teeth if he does it at all, Sonny. What if it doesn't happen on January the 10th? Or what if we don't, we're not able to trade it immediately?
8: Yeah, so I, again, I think it will happen in the next 30, 60 days, but the bigger question is when does it go live? And how long can he delay it from going live? And I think, you know, April, May, June timeframe is realistic for it to be live. I think past that, he runs legal risk and all that. And I think, again, in his mind, he's going to do the compromise, like, I'm going to give you the Bitcoin ETF, but I'm not going to give you Solana, Ethereum, Cardano, etc. No, 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 we'll deal with all that next year. And then the crypto community will be happy just getting the Bitcoin win out the door for the ETF. Sonny,
0: you mentioned the halving uh, as a a key event, future catalyst for Bitcoin in 2024. Many other guests last week also referenced that. And my question is, what is your kind of big picture Bitcoin call for 2024? Because we started this conversation a few weeks ago with the absolute belief that what was driving the trading in Bitcoin or the, the price activity was anticipation of spot ETF actually there's plenty of evidence that there's a
8: lot more to it than that. Yep, I think the halving is actually a bigger catalyst to that and so the, cat- the halving alone would normally propel Bitcoin to an all-time high probably each in the four years it happens, right? And what happens is in April when the halving happens, it normally is a dud event, nothing happens, the price actually goes down a little bit and then six months later is when you really see as it's filtered through the system what the effects of it, right? And combine that with the Bitcoin ETF, we think again the price would, you know, go from, you know, f- 45 50,000 3 months from now and 6 months from now to 100 real fast. Once it gets to 60, we think the que- it's clean slate to 100. And when it hits 100,000 for Bitcoin, it becomes a 2 trillion dollar market cap currency. And then the media and all that, the frenzy will be huge by the end of the year. So again, we think Q3, Q4 you're going to see a lot of excitement with the price of Bitcoin. Q2 on the having not so much.
6: And
3: Beluga, you're you're saying that you're cutting through the noise basically helping people understand which projects are, are the ones the safest products to be in, interacting with investing in but ultimately bitcoin is that an investment a store of value many want to see for crypto purpose real deployment a change a fixing a problem when does that actually become more nuanced or clear to an investor base
8: yeah that's what we're hoping we hope end of the year, we start seeing more payments products, lending products, staking products. Again, we believe the mission of Bitcoin and crypto is not just buy and hold. It's buy and hold, stake, play, earn, use, lend, pay, etc. There's a lot of things that can be done with Bitcoin besides just speculation as well as crypto in general. We're seeing the launch of Web3 games happen, crypto payments, crypto lending products. So there is, again, there's 400 million people in the world that have crypto and only about 10% are power users doing things besides just buy and holding. a little bit to get the other 90% 350 million to start using crypto in the right way there's a much more out there than just buy and hold
3: sunny Singh, great to have some time with you co-founder ceo of beluga stay well meanwhile coming up look we'll have all the latest in the world of health tech this is of course is the jp morgan health conference it kicks off in san francisco but ed we've got something else to look out for ahead of it
0: Yeah, some news crossing in the last few minutes. Duolingo, the language learning software company, is cutting 10% of its contractor workforce. A spokesperson telling Bloomberg that 10% of contractors were off-boarded because the company wants to focus more work on AI driving its development and growth. $9 billion market cap company, no sharp reaction in trading to those headlines. The stock was already up, but now 3.8% higher. This is Bloomberg Technology. All right, there's been a lot of M&A news in the world of biotech today with Harpoon Therapeutics near a deal to be acquired by drug maker Merck & Co., at about $700 million value. Meanwhile, Johnson & Johnson will pay $2 billion in cash to acquire Ambrox Biopharma, gaining a developer of widely sought therapies that target tumours with lethal drugs. I want to break it all down with Vijay Pandey, founder, founding general partner of Andreessen Horowitz Bio Health Tech. Group, interesting timing. Yeah, because absolutely. J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference, the annual one, is on here in SF. I've covered a few of those. Mm-hmm. You've been to a few of those. Yes. It is interesting, though, that there is some M and A here in, yeah. in, in call it biopharma, biotech, healthcare. What's your kind of tea leaf read of that?
9: Yeah, well, it's JPM, right? So there's going to be fireworks. That's what we're all kind of looking for. You know, uh, sort of in the b- inside baseball. Uh, Clearly, the IPO window has been closed for a while, or has been uh, barely open. And so M&A will be the, a natural consequence of that. And so I think we were starting to see a little bit of that this year, uh, probably maybe a little more than last year, but I think probably the big, big sort of fireworks come maybe in, in a year. Right. My, my experience of J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference is kind of similar to CES,
0: other tech conferences, in that it's the one time of the year where everyone's in one place. Yes. You can take a lot of meetings, I call it speed dating. Yes. Um, but you raise an interesting point. M&A is- is one other exit strategy for a VC like you. you look at your portfolio right now. In 2024, do you see some exit opportunity down that route?
9: Yeah, I mean, MA but also the IPO window may open. I think interest rates may go down. We expect that. So maybe by the end of the year, Q2, Q3, 2 q Q4, that window may be open. I think people are preparing for that. Um, the market has to be there, of course. You think people are? You know people are. Uh, I, 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 I've seen that people are.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Good. A yeah. little plotting there. And uh, VJ Yeah. AI has been almost what dictated the companies that couldn't get out the gate last year. A lot of them had AI within their very business model or they tried to amp up the fact that it was a play on AI as well as also profitability. But is AI going to be a dictator of which biotech companies come forward or is it actually just them solving a real problem with profitability as it stands?
9: So right now, the thing about AI is that I think last year was the year where AI was really sort of further developed. And this year is where it really starts to get implemented, both in life sciences and healthcare more broadly. And that's something that incumbents would love to do, but it's hard. It's really fundamentally changing the way that company works. And so startups will be a way to do that. And and that's been the history of all technological revolutions.
3: What's interesting is many on the more optimistic side of use and practicality and necessity of AI, talk up the impact on healthcare as a real reason that we shouldn't hold back innovation here for fear of it being a step too far and we shouldn't regulate it. From your perspective, how is that ongoing conversation going, generative AI and the impact on healthcare being safe well,
9: you know, I don't think it's a question about not regulating it because healthcare and life sciences are already regulated, right? So the question is, do we need any more regulation? And given the, the challenges that we're facing in terms of curing diseases, treating patients, uh, the opportunity here is for really fundamentally advance our space. And we already have a regulatory framework to make sure that can be done safely. One of the big stories toward the end of the year, Kara and I covered, was CRISPR and the
0: developments there, for example. We refer to health tech, biotech as as, as a blanket term, but within that there is so much. And I wondered if you have a clear area of excitement for 2024, a very specific technology or issue that you think will be challenged or tackled.
9: Yeah, I think, you know, we've talked about AI and I think what's happening right now is that AI is coming to uh, to bear at a time where biology also is fundamentally changing. Biology is becoming much more of an engineering discipline. And CRISPR is one example of that, but there's many examples, especially with all these new modalities. And so a combination of being able to engineer biology and gather huge amounts of data is coming at the same time that we have AI to use that data. That combination is something that I think we're going to see as the sort of key power pushing this industry for the next decade. Uh, Venture capitalists are long-term, long-duration investors with
0: long time horizons. But what's your strategy for 2024? What types of company will you
9: invest in? Yeah, so I think we're going to see some advances in AI, but actually the reality is that even if AI doesn't advance any more than it is today, the implementation of AI is going to change our our field, that we're moving from an area where it's sort of bespoke and artisan to a true industrial revolution, and that industrialization is a huge change itself. And so the implementation of AI is going to dominate 24, and we're looking to see not just who can innovate in the space, but who can actually put it to work.
3: And to that point, you think of a portfolio company like a Benchling, which is ultimately allowing... R&D to be shared and stop some of the limitations and, and in the paperwork and, and individual siloed particular labs have and an ability to actually share your learnings and drive it forward. When you are looking at your portfolio companies, have they done enough, do you think, in this environment to ensure that they're focusing on growth, not at any cost, but the right cost?
9: Yeah, I I think growth is something where it's always a key part of of a startup, but I I think right now the opportunity is that a lot of these startups in life sciences and healthcare have been on a different curve, and I think as they become tech companies, and AI is a very natural way for them to become a tech company, uh, the growth will come uh, uh, along for the ride, and and that's actually part of the excitement here is that typically we don't think of healthcare as a tech problem, and as people start to refocus and think of it in that way, we're going to have advances that will come much more rapidly.
3: I hope you'll come on when we do We'll get all those advances We thank you so much for setting us up for Of course that JP Morgan conference General partner over at Andreessen Horowitz, It's great to have you on the show Going viral An extraordinary story of how Apple's promise for sturdy iPhones May have been kept after one was Reportedly found intact After falling 16,000 free from that Alaska Airlines flight 1282 this weekend. Now, according to a user post on X, the phone was in airplane mode and still had hours of battery life remaining. Now, flight 1282 was forced to turn back minutes after takeoff from Portland, Oregon, when a fuselage panel blew off the plane and sucked shirts and clearly phones out and luckily no people, Ed.
0: Uh, Let's stick with high altitude, Cara, and get a different take on tech and aviation because United Launch Alliance's long-awaited Vulcan rocket headed into space after launching from Florida's Cape Canaveral early this morning. About 50 minutes after liftoff, the rocket deployed a robotic lunar lander and if all goes well with the mission, it could be the first privately made lander to successfully land on the moon. Karen.
3: Meanwhile, coming back down to earth, let's look at Twilio shares. Actually, well, they're doing well on the back of what is the founder, Jeff Lawson, stepping down as CEO, giving up his board seat even. Now this we are going to dig into with Brody Ford joining us for more because investors clearly wanted this. They have been pushing for it. This is an activist who found their moment because Jeff Lawson, as founder, finally gave up voting rights, right?
4: Right, yeah. When you start a company, oftentimes you have these really high-powered shares. Uh, Jeff started this company in 2008, and those shares expired last year. What does that mean? It means you can vote him out. Um, And so activist investors who were upset with a long trend of slowing growth and wanted a mix-up have been kind of privately speaking to him. A lot of investors I hear from say they wanted to switch up, and I think this was expected. I think this came sooner than many folks anticipated, though.
0: Okay, so Jeff Lawson out, Kazema Shipchandler in, uh, what do we know about the new CEO that's coming in, Brody?
4: Yeah, so the thing to know about him is he's pretty much been Lawson's right-hand man, right? He was CFO. He led their largest business unit. like 90% of revenue. So, I mean, he is seen as more of a financial operations type than the founder evangelist type. But at the same time, I've seen some folks say, hey, if we wanted to change, why didn't we go for an external CEO? So that's the pro and knock on him is that he's an internal choice.
3: We'll see how it continues to evolve with the investor base. For now, a little bit of push up higher on the shares. Brody Ford breaking all down. We we'll appreciate him for it. Meanwhile, Ed, well, I'm glad you're in the seat today in SF, but you're about to take a flight yourself, right?
0: Yes, not on a Boeing 737 MAX 9, but all being well, I'll be off to CES in Las Vegas. And we have a tech daily out that the old kind of wacky gadget side of CES is still there. Big Good. focus this year on AI gadgets, but as is always the case, look at the names on the screen, it's also a chance for corporate America to say, hey, we know about AI as well.
3: Yeah, everyone's a tech company, right? L'Oreal, a tech company, obviously, key keynote. I mean, we've for long had it that car companies have been tech companies, but is this the ultimate proof point that now tech is a horizontal, not a vertical?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the everyone is a tech company kind of line. One of the other keynotes is Walmart and Doug McMillan, right? Big box retailer, but with an increasing e-commerce presence. They are exhibiting at CES on the showroom floor for the first time. So that's kind of what I'm interested in. If it's AI everything, what does that really look like if you are a L'Oreal, uh, whose CEO we will speak to? Or indeed some of the chip companies, right? Some familiar names to us like Cristiano Amon of Qualcomm, uh, René Haas of Arm. Their stories were AI in 2023. So what's new?
3: And what's new is also what the competitors are up to. And today is a day where NVIDIA leads the charge in terms of the overall Nvidia, um, NASDAQ benchmark because they do an iteration on a chip for PC AI. But it's notable that really AI has got to be within your business model if you're going to lead in this environment.
0: Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I like the weird stuff as well, right? The robots that can mimic your handwriting, uh,
3: high-tech toilets and
0: bidets. Those are all things we'll be checking out this week.
3: Just not on camera, right? The bidet and the toilet. Not on camera. Thanks. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology.
0: (laughs) Uh, Thank you to everyone that checks out the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We post them on the Bloomberg platforms, but also onto Apple, Spotify and iHeart. As Carrie said, I'm off to catch a flight from SF in New York City. This is Bloomberg Technology.